Uh, we're going to take this passage in three sections, okay? I didn't have a scripture reader because we're going to do it in three sections, okay? So uh, it's going to be good. These are the three words I want you to remember today. Persistent, humble, expectant. Persistent, humble, expectant. See if you can figure out which ones are which. It's going to go in order, so it's going to be fine. But Luke 18, verses 1 through 8 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me or punch me in the eye as it would be literally translated. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let me pray briefly and, and we'll get started. God, we, we just uh, ask that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully, that we would be sensitive to what God might, you might want to teach us today. And um, yeah, and so we just we pray that our, our prayer life would be filled with persistence, humility, and expectancy for what you're going to do. Amen. Amen. So uh, I don't know how you feel about Dr. Seuss. This isn't, has nothing to do with him really beyond just making that statement that he tried. I don't know if you guys know this, but he went to 27 different publishers before he got his first book published. Isn't that amazing? Dr. Seuss, who's produced a lot. <laughs> 27. Uh, Thomas Edison, it took him hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of experiments, they say, to uh, get the light bulb, right? I mean, it took him lots of time, lots of years. And I think that sometimes we, um, we expect kind of like a, 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 a general, like God to just kind of understand what we want, right? And, and God probably does, right? A, but, but there is a sense where we are called in the, in the scriptures and in this passage to cry out to God. Israel, the story goes, and, and is the, the nation of Israel for generations and still even to this day recall what God did in the Exodus. Do you guys remember what God did in the Exodus? His people were slaves in Egypt for generations and yet they cried out to God. And, and, and God actually says in Exodus, I heard their cry and have come to rescue them. And so Jesus is uh, amongst a number of people, disciples, would-be disciples, and he uh, begins to tell them this example of a widow who has lost Everything. We, we don't, doesn't say that in the text, but we know oh, anybody that's a widow in the first century context as a woman would have lost everything. She would have lost her husband. Um, she probably was, was penniless. Uh, the, for whatever reason, the laws, uh, this terrible law, an unjust law, but widows weren't allowed to basically inherit uh, what was their, her and her husband's estate 
after the husband passed away. So anything that was theirs together previously when he passes away goes to someone else. And so this woman most likely was penniless. She clearly had been wronged. Most likely people took advantage of her in that situation. That's probably what's going on here in Jesus' mind. Somebody took advantage of her, took uh, her possessions. And so she has very little, and she goes to this judge who has power, right, has standing, who has significance in that culture, where he is probably most likely prosperous, she is penniless. And there's really no one there to protect her because of her vulnerability in that time period, in that culture. So here she is, going to this judge, claiming eagerly that she has been wronged by a, pers a person opposing her. And this is the thing that would happen. This is kind of crazy. But in that context, in that culture that day, if someone had wronged you, you had to take that to the judge. You didn't call the cops and say, hey, somebody abused me or somebody mistreated me. Can you come and you know, figure out that this happened, take this to court, hire a lawyer? No, in this situation, she would have had to represent herself and she would have had to go directly against the person that had harmed her. So she would have had to stand in front of this judge who's an immoral judge, who doesn't care about good, who doesn't care about justice, and she would have had to try to convince this judge that this other person had somehow wronged her. It's an intimidating thought. It's an intimidating situation for anybody. And in light of the cultural norms that I expressed earlier, it would have been extremely intimidating for this woman. But she had significant persistence. She had grit that few of us have. And in this story, she demanded vindication. She would not stop bothering this guy until he would bring about what was right. But how do you convince a judge that's immoral and doesn't care about justice and doesn't care about people to, you know, help you out. There's probably a couple. One is to bribe them, right? But she had no money. You could try to give that judge a certain amount of cash and maybe he would be, with his immorality, he would, he would give in. You could threaten the judge. I know he seemed like he was scared of her punching him in the eye or attacking him, but I'm not sure how scared that probably really made him. She has no power. He has all the power. The only way, at least for my way, at least that I could think of, is for her to just not give up. To just every single second, if you continue to bother this guy and nag this guy, truly, until he was so frustrated that he would give in to justice. She had to persuade this immoral, unjust, hater of the good, with no fear of God, to side with her. She does this by persisting, by arguing, by bugging, by crying out. She challenges, she does whatever it takes so that this judge gives in. And notice he doesn't say, I've, she has changed my moral opinion about this situation. He is just being himself, selfish. He's worried that she's gonna attack him. He's worried that she's gonna never leave him alone. 
And Jesus' whole point, she says, if it, he says, if, if an immoral, unjust judge can be essentially pushed into giving justice, how much more a loving and merciful and good God could be convinced of helping you out. And I just wonder if this story just is Jesus declaring to us that oftentimes we just give up too easy. <laughs> I mean, I, I've shared with this before, but anybody that's been around kids, you don't have to have kids. Just be around a kid that's like young and there's some persistence when something's wanted, right? Oh my goodness. It's like intense, right? Can you do this? Can we do that? You said we could do this. You promised. When are you going to give me that thing that you said you were going to give me? It's been five minutes. They come back again. I'm, I still want that thing, right? When are you going to give it to me? Why is it taking so long? Where's dad? <laughs> That's usually where he's, he's supposed to be here and bring me that thing that he promised, right? And I think that there's a general principle that we're supposed to be like children, right? When we, we approach to God, like that's actually, I think what Jesus is saying, that's good. It's annoying when you're a parent, but somehow God is not quite as annoyed as we are by those things. Maybe he likes that kid longing for those things like we would long for God to act in our lives. And the promise of this passage is if we are, we are crying out to a loving, merciful, healing, miracle-working God and a God who comes through when our backs are against the wall, so we must cry out to him. We must pray unceasingly. We must persist. And we are, right now, in this moment, if we're willing to do that perfectly positioned for God to act, if we are willing to pray, if we're willing to cry out, if we're willing to continue on, you know, I, um, I always hate when there's a tragedy. Everyone always says like thoughts and prayers, you know, like that's like, oh, my, my, my thoughts and prayers are with you. And it's like, I get it. Like there's a big, you know, everyone kind of mocks that now. That's not like a Christian or not somebody that would, would hold to like a, a God that cares about those things. They kind of mock that because most of the time people just say it. They don't actually pray. <laughs> right? They don't actually think about anybody else. They don't actually give or take action or do anything like that. They're like, you need to take action. And as a pastor, I, I start to feel uncomfortable when people say that kind of like, I agree with what the principle is. Like you need to take action. You need to do good things. But I don't like this kind of like pushing prayer to the side as if it doesn't matter. Because according to this passage and according to much of scripture, prayer is a means by which God takes action in the world. So let's not dismiss the prayer. Maybe we can dismiss the thoughts. I don't know. But let's not dismiss the prayers. Maybe we just need to do it with more of an unceasing nature. Maybe that is part of the call to justice. Because we can be socially conscious, we can tweet out good advice, we can have wisdom, we can march. 
And I think that all those things are so important. But if we want a miracle, if we want God to act, the scriptures are calling us to pray, to cry out corporately. If we want God to do something now, it requires us to be on our knees. And some of you might say, I don't even know where to start. Like maybe you say, I've heard some prayers before, but I don't know how to pray. You know what's kind of sad is when you're, um, when you're first a parent, going back to the kid thing, and you're teaching your kids to pray, they pray with like their whole selves. It's like amazing. They're like, oh, I want that dog. And like, can I have the pony? And like, I want, my friend was mean to me. I, I pray that she gets hit, by, you know, like, I don't know, gets hurt or something. It's like, they just bring everything that they're feeling to the table. And then they kind of get, they learn like, this is how you're supposed to pray. And it's always like, God, thank you for this food. And thank you. And it's like, okay, that's good, right? That's good. But I kind of like the other ones. Sandy used to pray like this. She used to just pray, like shaking her head, like, Holy Spirit, you know, like, Jesus, God, you know, she was saying all kinds of things. I was like, yes, like, this is so, so beautiful. When you pray, bring everything you have to God. Bring your whole self. Jesus is saying, what kind of faith is he going to have, are you going to see when he comes back? And we want to be a community of people of consistent prayer. And I was just thinking like, I know like we're, we're gonna go through a bit of a transition as a church. People, and me included, are, are sad and a bit nervous about how this is all gonna go. <laughs> what if we were persistent in our prayers? What if we cried out to the Lord? I think that God will answer us. So persistence. Second part of the passage also on prayer. Verse nine says this, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a 10th of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is doing something here. He's trying to take somebody that would be absolutely loved and respected and admired in the context and somebody that would have been hated and tries to like basically flip the script. I know for a lot of us who read the Bible, we think of the Pharisees very negatively because Jesus comes across them and really seems to push. But in that culture and in that context, they would have been revered. They would have been considered the most holy people around that if anybody would have understood what God is like and what God calls us to, it is these men that had given up their lives to be obedient to God's law and God's rule. And so Jesus gives this example to prove a point. He's trying to take essentially somebody that would like betray their country. Like, I don't know, think of the worst person you can think of, right? And basically someone that would have viewed like a Mother Teresa in the time period. They would have been pillars of the society. And tax collectors would have been the exact opposite. They sold themselves out to the Roman Empire to collect taxes. They ripped people off. 
They stole people's hard-earned money and became rich by essentially going against their own people. So this is the thing that's so interesting about this passage is everything that the Pharisee says is true. He's not like those other people. He fasts twice a week. He gave a tenth of what he had earned. His trouble was not that he was not far enough along the road, but that he was on a completely different road. He had fundamentally misunderstood what the kingdom of God is like. Because what happens when you become prideful is it keeps you from seeing God's grace and God's love and mercy in a significant way. It keeps us from seeing our own sin and it causes us to look down on other people. Pride keeps us from admitting what's actually going on in our hearts. Pride keeps us from the love of God and from healing from what God wants to do in your own life. I just think we, we, we see arrogance as detestable to God. It's almost like he's praying this prayer to himself for himself. <laughs> he's not even praying to God. He's just like, wow, I'm a really great person. You know what I mean? I'm so much better than this other person. And there's really two characteristics uh, that I want to highlight from this. And, I, and as I've given these before in another sermon, but there's two that I think really stick out. And one is that he believes himself to be superior. This is a, a critical mistake in trying to follow Jesus, is it not? <laughs> Superiority leads to comparison. He compares himself to the other without knowledge of this man's story, this man's history, this man's like, life situation, and what's happened, the trauma that, that he may have experienced in his life or the mistakes that he's made or his heart condition, all the things that are going on. He devalues someone not based on their personhood, but only values them for their actions or their profession. The second thing we see is a, a level of entitlement. Because I'm superior, because I've done beyond what you've asked, God, I deserve your love. I deserve to be considered better than these other people. I deserve your salvation. You're entitled to God's mercy, even though you've, you've, already, you know, you've already received it and received it in full. One of the most significant hindrances to effective prayer is self-righteousness. That's more connected to what you do instead of what God has done. I just, would, I just want to say, like, stop comparing yourself with other people. This is what we do, right? Like, we're trying to follow Jesus, and we say, well, the good news, the bad news is, like, I, I have problems, right? The good news is that I'm better than that person, right? Oh, she's really worse. She does the harder drugs. Well, he's a thief, so I'm better than that guy, at least. Well, she's a liar, right? And I don't, I don't typically lie, so... 
well, I do some stuff, but I, I don't really hurt anyone else, and I go to church on Sunday, right? And yet the tax collector, this, this man that, gosh, he's done a lot of stuff wrong. <laughs> I mean, truly, this guy was a sinner. Anybody was a sinner. Can you imagine just ripping off all your friends and neighbors and people you grew up with, taking all their money from them? Like, that's a pretty brutal person. But for whatever, the conviction from this guy is, is, is heartfelt and, and he's feeling some sense of, of God in his life and he says he comes to God. Beats his chest asking God for forgiveness. I think this is really significant. And this is another thing that I think our culture messes up. I, I, there's been a movement against shame and I think that that's a good thing because I think we can live in shame for, for years and years and years and that's not of God. But there is such thing as a conviction of sin. Like there are times in your life that it's not shame, it's just God convicting you because you're doing something you shouldn't do. <laughs> can we just say that? Not everything is people, you know, shaming you for whatever you're doing. There are things that are right and wrong. And sometimes when we do things that are wrong, God convicts us of sin and calls us to his, towards repentance. And that's what's happening to this guy. I am in need of God's grace. I am in need of God's forgiveness. I am need, in need of God's love. God, be merciful to me. And for whatever reason, that heart and that spot is the place that God's kingdom like, is able to be ushered into you in your life. That's when God can just, just go all the way in. That's when the Holy Spirit makes you come alive in Christ. And so Jesus' point is to say that the repentant person that loves God and longs for God to work in his life and forgive him of his sin was regarded by God as more just than the self-satisfied Pharisee. The basis of God's assessment of two people is not simply their actions, but the state of their heart. I think there is this like, strong push in this passage against what we typically would perceive as those who are saved, like those who are in and those that are out and what it even means to experience transformation or growth in your Christian life. If a tax collector can be justified over a Pharisee, this should be deeply humbling to us. That a tax collector could be closer to the heart of God than a religious leader should reshape our perspectives on holiness and what it means to follow Jesus. My point is that those that we often look down as the least holy and the most sinful might be further along in their journey with God and their understanding of who God is simply because they're willing to receive God based on his mercy instead of their own works and their own righteousness. Because they have surrendered to the love of God, not their own achievement. That they trust in the cross of Christ and that atoning work.
like so much in Luke's gospel, this again turns many of our accepted values upside down. The kingdom of God is the realm of grace, not of achievement. God's love is not earned. It's freely given to those who are conscious of their need for it. Humbly, humble yourself and receive this true love of God. That's what essentially Jesus is saying. It's this unconditional, radical, extravagant nature of love that beckons us to come and receive all that the kingdom, all that Jesus offers and what the kingdom of God is all about. In the last passage, this one isn't even about prayer, but I think it should be included in this little section. It says, verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter into it. I love that. Oh, I love it. Children are, are so expectant. Uh, one of the things that we've been practicing in our home is like hearing from God. And, um, you know, Sunny keeps asking us, like whenever we pray, did you hear? Did you hear something? <laughs> what did God say? Like, uh, like, so we'll sit down and we'll pray as a family and she'll say, she's like looks around afterwards, like, did anybody hear, right, something? And it's been really cool because, but she's just so expectant. She's just anticipating that God's gonna speak and it's gonna be something great and it's gonna be good. And I think that that's the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. This per, the, these, these kids that are just full of life and joy and hope and expectancy for what God is going to do and trust. Just a, a complete and total trust of Jesus. And so I'm just thinking about what does it look like to be a community that's persistent, that's humble and expectant. What does it look like to be that type of community that, that prays and, and focuses our prayer lives and, and, on those three things in this next season of our lives? What might God do? How might God speak to us? What might God do in you? What might God do in this community?